From Luminary and Built It Productions, it's wisdom from the top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, author, management expert, and renowned business school leader, Roger Martin. We are taught that your job as a manager is to make tough choices. I'm a decision maker. I make trade-offs. I use analysis. And that's one of the reasons why you have a crisis of innovation in the big companies in the world, because they're busily trying to analyze their way to something new, which you can't do. Roger shares insights about management drawn from his legendary career spanning four decades. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Every two years since 2001, an organization called Thinkers 50 has released a ranking of the premier management thinkers in the business world. The list gets revealed at an awards gala in London. It's a ceremony the Financial Times calls the Oscars of management thinking. And in 2017, the number one spot on that list went to Roger Martin. Roger has a career spanning nearly 40 years as a management consultant, business strategy thinker, and prolific business book author. He advises CEOs worldwide at companies like Ford, Lego, and Procter & Gamble. But Roger's also made his mark in academia, leading the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management as its dean for 15 years. So to say the least, he's kind of a big deal in the world of management strategy. And one of Roger's most influential ideas, maybe what he's best known for, is a concept he researched and developed called integrative thinking that he laid out in his book, The Opposable Mind. The basic idea is that exceptional business leaders are integrative thinkers, and it allows them to navigate difficult decisions more effectively. To Roger, the obsession with efficiency at work is actually unhealthy and inefficient, and it's the opposite of integrative thinking. Roger Martin grew up in a tiny farming town in Canada, in between Toronto and Detroit, called Wallenstein. And when it came time for Roger to decide what to do after graduating high school, he didn't quite know what he would do next. When I went to see my guidance counselor about where I should go to university, 
He said, and I will never forget these words, they're etched forever in my brain, well, Roger, it doesn't really matter, they're pretty much all the same. <laughs> I, I'm presuming it's because I was an uber jock, and so maybe he just thought I had me stereotyped as a dumb jock. But in that moment, what popped into my mind was, I will show Mr. Conlon, they're not all the same. I'm going to go to X. And the X had to be the definition of not the same. And so I said to myself, I'll show Mr. Conlon, I'm going to go to Harvard. Hmm. And so I rode away to Harvard to figure out how you, what you had to do to go there and found out all these horrifying things like you had to write something called the SAT, which I'd never heard of in my life, had to get reference letters, hadn't heard of those in my life, uh, et cetera, <laughs> yeah. et cetera. But I was so mad at being essentially dissed by Mr. Conlon that I went through the, that whole ritual and got in. And then when I got in, I sort of had to go to prove my point. And so... It wasn't a ma big master plan. It was literally an adverse reaction wow. to Mr. Conlon. All right. So you uh, moved to the United States and and mm -hmm. you graduate and, and, and you ended up staying on to do an MBA. Was it your idea to start a business or to get into finance or to become a consultant? Like did you – was it a plan you had or was it a fallback? No, it was – well, <laughs> In essence, after four years of undergrad, uh, I had acquired a then-girlfriend who was also a Harvard College senior, and I played uh, men's volleyball. In our senior year, the men's volleyball team coach, I was captain of the team, and the men's coach said, this is going to be my last year. I'm going to go to Greece and coach a club team over there and make lots of money. And so the job of head coach of the Harvard men's volleyball team was open and so I needed a ironclad excuse to my parents for why I would be hanging around Cambridge. And the best cover story I could possibly come up with was going to Harvard Business School because nobody could accuse you of being a useless layabout or something <laughs> by going to Harvard Business School. Yeah. So it was my cover story. And I was the during my first year and second year, both years at Harvard Business School, was the head coach of the Harvard varsity men's volleyball team, which was a bit tricky because it was completely illegal to have a job of any sort in first year of Harvard Business School. So I lived in fear of a story about the volleyball team being in the you know, sports section of the Harvard Crimson and somebody at the business school saying, hold it. Who is this Roger Martin? Don't we have a first year by that name? Uh, and I'd get kicked out. So it was a tricky cover story. Hmm. When you finished, when you graduated, uh, you went back to Canada mm -hmm. and worked in consulting for a few years. Um, but then I guess you, you came back to Cambridge, Massachusetts to work with Michael Porter, the famous, legendary Harvard Business School professor who had a consulting firm called Monitor. Um, and he hired you. So t tell me a little bit about what what Monitor did. Sure. Well, it was a consulting firm that was kind of created by a group of people who either taught with Michael Porter or were, were in the Harvard Business School class of 81. Uh, so Mike Porter became famous by writing a book called Competitive Strategy in 1980. And Mike would have people coming to him saying, Mike, 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 I read your competitive strategy. Can you do some of that stuff for me? And so we built a firm that was initially based on sort of Mike Porter's toolbox. So we had a bunch of 
sort of philosophies that were somewhat unique. And an important one was we felt that good strategy has to come from within. So the practice at that time in the early to mid-80s was if you had a strategy problem, you would phone up BCG or McKinsey or Bain and say, here's my problem. They would say, thank you very much. They would go away, study it, and come back and say, here's your answer. And we objected to that because we said, well, one, lots of those answers nothing ever happens to because they aren't actually as appropriate as they seem to the outside consultants who've yeah. only been there for a few months as opposed to the people who've been there for 20 years. And so we're going to teach people how to do strategy by working with them on strategy problems so that when we're done, they will be in a better position to do it themselves kind of on their own. Hmm. So that was a radical departure from the industry uh, at the time. So instead of the traditional model, which is you send a bunch of people to a company, study it, leave, write a report, and then deliver a report, you would well, – I mean, how would you operate? You would go to the company and stay there? I mean, some of that is more that the project team – would be a combination of client people and monitor people, and mm -hmm. they would all be equals on the team. It wasn't like we're running it, you're, no, no. Yes. We would form a, a team, dole out the work, have the client do as much work as humanly possible. So we could teach them and we could say, well, this is what a good customer analysis looks like. Mm -hmm. Let's design one together. Let's go and do it uh, together. And then there isn't this sort of, I have to go explain it to you and explain that this is really the way you should think about customers. No, it's the way you've figured out with some help of, of ours, how to think about customers. Um, you spent, I think, about 13 years at Monitor Company mm -hmm. um, before you left to go into academia to become the dean of the business school at the University of Toronto in Canada. Tell me about that decision. <laughs> I, I guess I've, I've always had a, a view that if you are a successful business person, you should turn your uh, talents or whatever skills, your time to public service. And I always thought that maybe when I was 50 plus, I, I would I would do that. But then this, this guy, Rob Pritchard, who is the president of University of Toronto, Canada's biggest and by most measures overall best university, I happened to be consulting to a company he was on the board of. And he saw me in action and decided that I should become the dean of his business school. Hmm. And he's an extremely persuasive man and persuaded me at the ripe old age of 41 to become the dean of the Rotman School of Management uh, because by that time, having consulted in the global environment, I thought it, I would do my public service by attempting to take a laggard business school that wasn't even close to the top business school in Canada at the time and make it a globally consequential business school. While you were there, you began to develop ideas which you would later become known for, integrative thinking, which we'll talk about in a moment. But one of the first books you, you released was called The Responsibility Virus. Yeah. And it was about how the fear of failure makes failure inevitable. Yes. It was a, it was a book that the people who have read it say that wasn't easy to read, but it changed my life. So I'm sort of happy with one aspect of it, which it had a, a good and important 
message. But yes, that was my first book, 2002, and it is something that I just, again, I noticed. Everything that I, that I write about comes out of me working with people and companies, and I noticed that people have a tendency to be comfortable in one of two positions. You know, if you and I are sort of notionally working together guy, it's I'm in charge guy and you're not, mm-hmm. or I'd be equally comfortable with you're in charge guy and I'm not. And so responsibility kind of gets split to too great an extent that way. And generally speaking, there's something in between that is more appropriate. It would be more productive for me to say, yes, you're in, you're in charge guy, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go out and try and solve this problem. And I'm going to come back to, to you with three options. And since you're my superior, you can then help by choosing from among the three options rather than sitting there saying, okay, guy, you're in charge. Tell me what to do. There's this sort of cycle of over and under responsibility that people get into. And the only way out is to be a lot more thoughtful about how to divide responsibility for any joint activities at the outset. The, what's interesting about this book, I know this this came out, you know, quite a while ago, but was mm-hmm. that it seems to me that it was it was not written for the manager, but the subordinate. And maybe I'm wrong about that because it, you know, for example, it talks about how mm-hmm. a most responsible person would consider options and make a decision and then inform the superior of that decision, which is what any I think many managers want. They want their subordinates to take charge, make decisions, or I think good managers do, and own those decisions. From the perspective of a manager, how do you get people to to do this, to take – I mean, you know, the, the onus is on the manager as well to manage well enough to give people the confidence to take decisions. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, I think of it as, as sort of equally from both sides, although in a pinch, I'd say since the manager is the boss, if he or she doesn't take – good initial steps. It's sort of more their fault than, than not. So I would, I would agree with you. No, it's to work people up to that level. So if you just on everything, you just say to your subordinate, you go figure it out and do it and tell me after you've done it, what choice you've made and what actions you've taken. What that'll do is be appropriate for some easy tasks and will scare the living daylights out of that subordinate in some really hard tasks. So A good supervisor, a wise supervisor will be able to calibrate and say, okay, this task is one where I can say, hey, go off, think about this and come back to me with plausible options. And then we'll think about those options uh, together. So you sort of work them up to ever higher, higher levels of responsibility, but you don't do that ubiquitously with all their tasks because you're going to give them a variety of tasks, some of which are easier and some of which are are harder. And my view is unless you do that as a supervisor, you're going to get all of these coping mechanisms, including doing something else other than what you wanted them to do so as to avoid obvious uh, failure at it. So by 2007, Roger Martin had been the dean at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management for almost 10 years. And that was also the year that he published his widely acclaimed book, The Opposable Mind. In it, Roger laid out his findings that most great leaders share a particular skill set, which he called integrative thinking. It's the ability and tendency for somebody when faced with what seems to be an either or choice 
when that choice is a choice that is kind of miserable, you don't like either solution, rather than saying, well, that's just my lot in life, I have to make rock and hard place choices, and I will just, I will just choose. Rather than that, they say, no, this is the time for me to think harder, longer about this, to be able to come out with a new solution that incorporates elements of each, but is superior to both. That is the definition of integrative thinking. So I know that over the years, you worked with hundreds and hundreds of different leaders and businesses. Who were some of the leaders that you saw who were able to, to practice it? Well, I would, I would use my, uh, my friend A.G. Lafley at, at uh, Procter & Gamble. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when he became CEO, he became CEO when they fired his predecessor for the first time in 160-odd years. Uh, CEO of P&G was fired. That CEO had, had tripled the spending on R&D. That had tanked their earnings because they weren't getting results from that to justify the spending. And Wall Street was mad. But... His predecessor wasn't crazy. He saw their differentiation, their technological differentiation lessening and said, we've got to ramp up our innovation spending to be able to to stay ahead of our competition and always have the best differentiated products. So he was faced with the choice of, do I take innovation spending back down to satisfy Wall Street and, and get our profitability up? Or do I keep it up and hope for it producing great results in the future and really have Wall Street mad at me as a brand new CEO. And by the way, they helped get the previous CEO fired for just just that. That's a nice rock and hard place choice, right? Where if you chose one or the other, you won't really make the problem go away. And so rather than doing that, AG said, hmm, is innovation really innovation? Is it really one thing? Or is it actually two things? It's invention and commercialization. And if we study invention carefully, we'll note that big companies do not have an advantage in invention. In fact, if anything, they probably have a disadvantage. It costs them more per invention than two kids working in a garage, one scientist working at a bench in a university or their basement. Commercialization, on the other hand, we have a huge advantage, right? So we're really good at branding. We're good at manufacturer yeah. ability, and we can get 100% distribution, retail distribution of almost anything immediately because all the retailers know us. And so how about this? We are going to go to something called Connect and Develop, where we will source 50%, half of our inventions from the outside. And by doing that, we'll double the pipeline through our innovation, machi- our uh, commercialization machine, and we'll have more innovation at a lower cost. And what happened is their innovation went up, their innovation costs went down. That's an example of an integrative solution. He says, nope. It's the time to think and think really hard, really carefully, really uh, creatively and come up with with a better solution. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. You know, when we think about this term or this idea, integrative thinking, and you, you acknowledged this idea in an article you wrote for the Harvard Business Review that this is not a new concept. Yes. But, but, but essentially, I mean, it does seem like common sense, right, that, that a, a strong leader would kind of go through a deliberative process where they would gather data, information, opposing views, consider them, figure out a new path using that input. It seems so clear and obvious, but in reality, not that many people do that. That actually this is the these are the, the tools and the qualities of exceptional leaders. Absolutely. And we are taught both in formal business education and the business world in general that your job as a manager is to make tough choices. You're led, if anything, away from the idea that no, 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 the most helpful, useful executive in that situation isn't the, quote, tough guy or tough gal. It's the, the person who steps back and does what is actually a more difficult thing. Like, it's easy to say, well, you know what? I had no choice. Guy, I had no choice. I had to cut innovation spending, right? That's easy. The harder thing is to say, no, we're going to get more innovation for less. How about that? Here's how we're going to think our way through that. I'm going to be intimately involved in figuring that out. That's what makes for, for greatness, but it's not what's taught. What's taught is, is it's about 
trade-offs. Mm. Now, the problem, right, is that that new way of doing it requires creativity. Mm. And in a world where everything, including the practice of economics and the practice of business, has become more quantitative and we need an algorithm for, for doing that, we actually don't teach creativity to people in business. Yeah. So while you may think it's, it's sort of, it should be second nature, each minute, each year of your training takes you farther and farther away from that intuitively obvious point to a point that says, no, I'm a decision maker. I make trade-offs. I use analysis. And that's one of the reasons why you have a crisis of innovation in the big companies in the world, hmm. because they're busily trying to analyze their way to something new, which you can't do. I mean, this is an important point because oftentimes when new ideas are brought to leaders or managers, they want to know whether it's going to work before they start to work on it. But oftentimes that's a chicken and egg problem because a new or innovative idea may not have a data set, right, which you can point to and say, well, here you go. And so it leads to an absence of risk-taking. And I think this is the challenge that many big companies face, right, is that they know that their business model depends on a legacy product or service that works. They're not focused on what might happen in five or ten years' time. Yeah, the, the only thing I would disagree with, Guy, is you said oftentimes, right? It's all, <laughs> Always, the, time, all the time, all the time. Yeah. Charles Sanders Peirce, who was uh, one of, uh, for those who are into American pragmatist philosophers like Dewey and William, John Dewey and William James, Charles Sanders Peirce is one of the three greatest American pragmatist philosophers. And he pointed out uh, no new idea in the world, in the history of the world has been proven in advance analytically. Yeah. You know, if you if you go to you're working in some company guy and you're I don't know the head of R and D or maybe just the head of the product and you go to the to the CEO and say I've got this great new idea I think it can be a real you know, just just a breakout success for us and the CEO just says oh guy guy that's very interesting mm. now if you can just go out and prove that this will work then I'll give you the half a billion dollars you're asking for. Mm. And so you water it down and water it down and water it down so that it's kind of sort of like what we're doing now, only with a little nuance. And then you come back to him and he says, gee, guy, I really was, you know, I was really excited about that idea you came forward forward with. And this is like totally blah. And then, <laughs> and then <laughs> you decide that life's too short and go and uh, and uh, move sign and yeah. and, uh, and go to a startup. Yeah. So what is the? Tell me. Let's let's look at that scenario again, right? And yep. and and CEO is in her office and yes. ambitious uh, manager, middle manager comes in and says, "I have an idea that we need to pursue because if we don't, our business model will be in trouble." If the playbook is to say, well, go and get some data, collect it, come back and show me that it can work, if that's the playbook, what's a better alternative? Okay, the better alternative, if she is a, a, a wise CEO, she will say, okay, that's interesting. Here's the question. How can we productively turn the future into the past? Because the good thing about the past is there's all sorts of data about the past, Right. The bad thing about the future, the next year, is there's no data about the next year. But the good thing about next year is that at the end of next year, there will be data about it. 
So we need to create an experiment. Let's ask the question, what's the minimum viable manifestation of your idea that we could put out to gather future data, data that doesn't exist now, that would help us either become more confident or less confident in uh, uh, your idea. So I'm sorry, Guy, I can't give you 500 million up front, but could you spend 50 million to do a viable test where you and I both agree, Guy, that if we see this kind of reaction to our idea in the future, it will provide encouragement, in which case I can give you another $200 million to try it again with all the learnings we have from it. And then if that works out, we can go the whole $500 million and we'll have, we'll have a smash hit on our, our hands. That's what you should, be, you should be doing. Is there an example that comes to mind where you actually saw this exact scenario play out? Um, sh- sure. Uh, I did that at the Rotman School. I said, I believe that students would like a, a mini term in their second year. Second year, you have to take 10 second year electives, five in the fall, five in the spring. How's about we come back from the, the winter break and we put a two-week mini term in there where they take one course intensively, if they wish. And I got told, you know, well, this will never work. This is a terrible idea, Roger, da, 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 all, this, all this stuff. And so I just said, how's about we just run an experiment? And I talk half a dozen of our best and most amenable professors into doing a trial of a, of a two-week intensive course, and we offer it up, right? And so I didn't try to prove it in advance. I just said, can we experiment? And both the professors who didn't think they'd love it loved it, and the students were completely gaga over it. And then after about four or five years of doing that, I went back to the faculty council and said, you know, this experiment we've been running, you know, we never actually passed that through faculty council. We should we should actually have a vote on this. And it was like, you know, a hand vote in five minutes, uh, 100% uh, behind it. Whereas if I would have tried to vote for it up front, it would have been voted down and we could have never done it. So that, that would be just a mini, mm-hmm. a mini version of using that methodology, which is to get data from the future because that's the only kind of data that's going to be useful. And I needed to generate future proof in order to do it. In Roger Martin's latest book, just published in 2020, he zooms out from the boardroom to look at some big picture issues facing American capitalism and even democracy. Roger argues that some of those challenges are rooted in the way our economy has come to value efficiency above everything else. First of all, I mean, if we have a system today, and you you talk about this in your new book, When More Is Not Better, that essentially the economy has moved from a normal distribution pattern where, you know, there are going to be people across the spectrum of economic status, let's say, right? So so strong middle class, there are obviously going to be people at the higher levels and the lowest levels, but that's changed where you now have, you know, most of the benefits of the economy going to a very narrow percentage of the population with a vastly reduced middle class. We kind of have a sense of how we got to this place. How do we begin to unravel that? Well, uh, what I would argue is that we've 
worship too much at the altar of efficiency. Anything that brings more efficiency will be good because it'll make the economy more efficient and essentially trickle down to everyone. And for me, the number one thing in turning around the situation we have is to take a much more balanced view of efficiency, how we need to balance efficiency with resilience more explicitly. And we have been on a 40 to 50 year unimpeded journey towards more efficiency is better. And this is just just to be sure, because there are going to be people who will jump to the conclusion that, that says, well, that's just Republicans uh, going for efficiency, the right going for efficiency, and the left is the bulwark against it. No, no, no. The entire American political spectrum has said that more efficiency is always better. They don't say it explicitly, right? But they act in, in that uh, fashion. Roger, let's let's kind of break this down and and talk about capitalism. Um, mm-hmm. We are we're facing a system that that has created vast economic inequality, which I think it's fair to say is not sustainable. That that is just unsustainable. I, I would agree with you, guy. I mean, I I'm there's a certain side of me that's surprised it's been as sustainable as it's been, but it takes time for these things to ripple ripple through. And if we just look at America, the dramatic rise in inequality has only been going on for about 30 years. And, you know, what country is as unequal as America is China. And I'm not convinced that it's unsustainable in China, uh, because I think you can have super high income inequality and totalitarianism. That's not a problem. The problem is if you want this thing that I kind of want, I think you want, I think a lot of Americans want, called democracy. Because in that case, 50% of people, 51% of people have to say, let's continue this system. In China, it's only one-tenth of 1% of people who have to say, let's continue this system. So, I mean, if, let's say, we have this system that that uh, and the human timelines are we, we tend to think that things are permanent like we look at democracy or capitalism and I think most of us assume that these are permanent systems but they've only really been around and certainly in this form for 100, 150 years, right? Sure. And so I guess the question is because I, I think I think democracy is a pretty good system. I think capitalism is a flawed model, but I don't, I don't think that the alternatives that humans have come up with work better. Right. I, I'm, I'm with you. I think democracy and capitalism can work. I think they did work in a way that I think was increasingly productive until about 1976, where it turned. And so it is in that period since where we where we have said to a much greater extent, hey, you know, more free trade is always better. Why? Because you get gains in efficiency from trade. Therefore, more must always be better. And we've even done things in America that, that just stunned me, given our history of anti, antitrust, Sherman Act, Clayton Act, to now there's an efficiency defense of mergers. Hmm. You know, if 
just making this up, Verizon and AT&T merge their wireless businesses into one business. And it can demonstrate that it can save $20 billion of, of costs, overlap of cell towers and, and computer systems and whatever. They can justify that merger on the basis of those efficiencies. When the antitrust laws on the books were designed to say, yes, but with 70, 80% market share, they can absolutely you know, screw customers. You know, that's what we have antitrust laws for. But we said, no, 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 no. Efficiency is so good, we can override, override that. So it's just, it's just this belief that there will be inherent benefits for democratic capitalism if we allow any and all forms of efficiency. No, it's just not true. There's no compelling rationale behind why more efficiency is always better. Let's talk about prescriptions here. Let's say we, you know, like the Winston Churchill line that democracy is the, the, the worst system except everything for else. For all the is, others. Except for the, all the others. I would say the same about capitalism, right? B because when humans have tried other experiments, the result has been a similar corrupt uh, structure, maybe even worse, right? And yes. How do we fix it? What are things that as a society we can do? There's some, some simple policy prescriptions, let's say more you know, higher taxes on the wealthy, better re redistribution of income. We know about those. But what are more, what's a more holistic way of thinking about fixing this? Well, I think, I think it starts with uh, the idea that no one kind of group can fix it. What I point out in the book is we, we need business executives to do some things differently. We need public policymakers, politicians, public policymakers to do something different. We need educators to do something different. We need citizens to do some things uh, differently. So I would say the first thing that has to be recognized is we can't point a finger at anybody and say, you go fix it. And I think it's somewhat different for each. So for business executives, I think they've just got to stop staying on and maintaining this sort of reductionist vector. They've got to stop with having singular objectives, right? Shareholder value maximization, this month's profitability, and and have multiple objectives. So I see examples like Costco, right, is a great company that doesn't pay anywhere in its entire system anywhere close to the minimum wage, even though they, they notionally could. They spend billions extra on wages because they say they are not into reductionism. They say, you know what? How we pay is going to influence how they come to work. Do they come to work confident that their family will have a roof over their head, their kids will have an education, et cetera? And if they do, they'll treat customers uh, way better because they'll be happier and not, not scared and worried. You know, standard business policy kind of would say, well, they'll be grotesquely inefficient and unprofitable because they're paying way too much in labor costs. There's way too much cost per hour and number of hours. Crazy. They'll do terribly. No, they're the most successful kind of retailer in, in America today. And it's by sort of rejecting kind of reductionism and having multiple measurements, not just uh, one. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I mean, I wonder, though, if when you think about Europe, okay, and I'm not saying that their systems are perfect. They have huge structural challenges. But in Europe, if you are a hairdresser, okay, or a, a work at a bakery, and you also have a family, you can do that because there there are basic needs that are met. Your health care, university, you don't have to save money for your children's university because they're relatively inexpensive or free. Your social security, there's going to be a safety net. So the kinds of things that Americans have to do, have to save for in order to raise a family, makes it very difficult for the primary breadwinner to, to, to be like a hairdresser, for example. So... A couple things. One, I concur on many things about Europe. I like Scandinavia in particular because Scandinavia is, is a smart, overarching policy. Now, the thing you have to remember, of course, about Scandinavia is it's bite-sized, right? It's, it is much easier to do some things at the bite-sized 4 million person Norway, you know, uh, kind of 9 million person uh, Denmark that are harder to do at 330 million America. That having been said... There are many lessons you can take from it. They just have more intelligent, uh, you know, fundamental tax policy, for example. The Scandinavian approach basically is to say, we're going to create a great country. You're going to want to live here. But the price you're going to pay for that is you're going to pay high personal tax rates. Hmm. Corporations, we want one thing and one thing only from you. We want you to create high-paying jobs in our jurisdiction. Because when somebody gets that high-paying job, they pay us a lot of personal taxes. So we're going to tax you super low so that you don't create those jobs somewhere else. You create them here. So everybody thinks that you know Sweden is some kind of socialist uh, country. It is not. It is a cleverer capitalist country than America. Yeah. We could be smart uh, like them. It would be totally doable. And this is, again my rant against reductionism, right? If you only think of one piece of the puzzle and you don't think of how it all fits together, one of the things I think we need to shift to is a world in which no legislation is permanent. Every legislation has a requirement for review and reissue, or it just gets tossed out. People say, oh, that's silly, Roger. You could never do that. Well, look at Canada. The most important piece of, of business legislation in Canada by far is the Bank Act. That is like all U.S. financial services legislation wrapped into one bill. So it's bigger than any any financial services legislation in the U.S. by orders of magnitude. It came in 1871 with the requirement 
for a review and revision, a formal review and revision every 10 years. Why? It's because some wise people in 1871 said, man, this sector is changing fast. And whatever we say about how you should charter banks and legislate them and what about insurance companies, whatever, all of that is, is uh, who the hell knows. And so we're going we're gonna to make it uh, mandatory. So it doesn't matter who's in power. It isn't the conservatives hating the Bank Act or the liberals hating the Bank Act. And so they're going to no. it's whoever's in power has got to go uh, review it. And it worked so well that in 1992, they shrunk it to five years. And like, guess who didn't melt down in the financial crisis? No Canadian bank got into financial data. There were no bailouts. Why? They had less than five-year-old legislation. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great example of, of smart leaders. And it, it brings me back to your ideas around leadership and integrative thinking because it's – I think it's all connected to all of the themes we're talking about here, right? Mm-hmm. Is, I mean, is it something that in your view – anybody can figure out and and learn? Absolutely. So I came up with this notion of integrative thinking that arose out of kind of senior executives, and I wanted to teach it to MBA students, right, who who have, you know, K through 12, plus an undergraduate degree, plus work experience, and, I, and they're ready to, to have this higher order kind of thinking. And I had this wonderful uh, woman, a very outlier figure, because she was a former primary school teacher who came to get an MBA at uh, the Rotman uh, School. And she took all the integrative thinking stuff and said, oh my God, this is great. You could teach this in K through 12. And I said, oh, come on, Ellie, their brains aren't ready for, you know, I was very kind of elitist view of view of this. And she said, no, 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 no. And so sure enough, we piloted with grade grade 10 before they went into grade 11 and did the international baccalaureate. They thought this would be a good thing to do. I gave the introductory lecture in the program and came to see them give their presentations of the integrative solution problem that they were trying to solve. It knocked me over the feather because it was every bit as good, if not better, than the MBA presentations. And so we we started a program to say, let's teach it in in high school. But still, I needed another lesson. Uh, We started teaching teachers how to do this, and we'd hold teachers. And there there were these elementary school teachers who would come to our program, and we'd say, oh, no, 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 you know, you can't teach it to kids that young. And they're like, we'll be the judge of that. Thank you very much. And sure enough, started teaching it super successfully, grade two, grade three, grade four. I went into some of the classes and watched the kids learn, and they can. So the answer is not theoretical. I am not asserting something. It is absolutely demonstrable that five-year-olds can learn integrative thinking. The answer is this is utterly teachable. It just isn't taught. That's Roger Martin. He's the author of When More Is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency. And by the way, remember how Roger's goal at the Rotman School of Management was to make it more globally recognized? Well, he succeeded. And today, the program is consistently ranked as the number one business school in Canada. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built-It Productions.